This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hi, it's Stephen Colbert, and I'm here to tell you about The Late Show Pod Show, which is the podcast of The Late Show with me, Stephen Colbert. And I'm here with my uh, producer of the podcast, Becca. Hi, Becca. Hi, Stephen. So what do people get when they listen to The Late Show Pod Show? Let's, let's sell this thing. The extended moments, for sure, because we run out of time for broadcast, but we have plenty of time on the podcast. It's kind of like being a live audience member of the show because you get things that no one else hears. Listen to The Late Show Pod Show with Stephen Colbert wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is the Olive Magazine podcast, a weekly roundup of food and drink chat brought to you by the team behind Olive Magazine. And this is episode 131. I'm Janine, Olive's food director and podcast host. This week, cookery writer Adam chats to Rene Redzepi, owner and head chef of the world famous restaurant Noma in Copenhagen, and the head of his fermentation lab, David Zilber. They discuss their new book, The Noma Guide to Fermentation. David explains why fermentation is a bit like a nightclub queue. And Rene describes some of their wilder ferments, including a disastrous experiment involving pig's blood. Hey guys, it's Adam, the cooker um, And I'm in Duck Soup, one of my favourite restaurants actually, um, with Rene Rizepi and David Zilba. Um, and you guys have just released a book called uh, The Noma Guide to Fermentation. What does fermentation mean to Noma? Because I think in the book you sort of say there's something on every plate that's fermented and like, how does that feed into what you do and do you think about it or is it just a natural process that these things end up on there? So fermentation at the restaurant at Noma uh, is more or less, uh, I, would say, I would call it our bloodline. It's in everything. It's in every single serving, mm-hmm. every day of the year, every menu. You don't see it, and you'd be hard-pressed to actually taste it. Although, if it's not there, you know it. Yeah. Uh, then you feel like something is missing. And that's sure. the thing about fermentations. When you, know, when you use it properly, it's like having uh, like building blocks. I mean, you, you look at a beautiful building. Mm-hmm. You don't see the foundation of things. And so uh, often, the foundation of a building will take more time than the actual building itself. And that's fermentations. When you use it, you don't see it, but it is what makes the dish maybe give it that extra special thing. And so for us, it's in everything. It is, 
it has eclipsed foraging. You know, we used to be the foraging restaurant. Yeah, and yeah, we, we do still forage and we have a big foraging team and mm-hmm. there's still a big program. Um, but fermentation is is who we are. Yeah, and so it's, it's sort of like making something more than the sum of its parts. So all these things in the background, which you add to things, and then they sort of just it build, like you're like saying, like yeah. building blocks, and it becomes it becomes more than it could be. Mm-hmm. And so I always use this example. So I mean, everyone's had sushi, and yes. everyone's had sushi before soy sauce, mm-hmm. and then after the soy sauce, it's like okay, now it's a morsel that I love. And want to have more of, yeah. And so that's what fermentation do uh, does to to cooking, mm-hmm. and that's what it does at Noma. So we've done hundreds of different things: potions, liquids, pastes that we use throughout cooking. And some of them are tart and acidic and umami laden. Mm-hmm. Others are roasted and deep. Mm-hmm. Um, others are sort of liquid and mild and adds, you know, a different thing to a serving. Um, but they're present in everything that we do. And I truly, truly believe that if people were to understand how uh, to use fermentations in their daily lives, it would make cooking easier. Yeah. It really would. That's how you can actually cook fast. Mm-hmm. You know, the idea that uh, cooking takes 30 minutes, I don't believe in that. I believe that, that, that the best cooks in their homes, if they're used to cooking, then you can do it in 30 minutes. But if you're just a, sort of a, a novice starting out cooking, there's no way. Yeah. But if you have fermentations, even you, you don't even need to do the ones that we have in our book, although mm-hmm. I think they make something special. But yes. if you just start using the ones that are available in supermarkets mm-hmm. and understanding them, it will actually make your cooking more delicious and, and you will be able to do it quicker. So As a cook, you know that if you have a bowl of spinach and you steam it quickly mm-hmm. and you add some lemon to it, but then in the lemon juice, you just put in a teaspoon of miso as well mm-hmm. and you melted it into that and then you add it last minute to your spinach. That's it. Your spinach will just yeah, taste yeah. so much better. It's almost like a piece of meat. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, how easy is that? But you've, of course, you've got to know it first. Yeah, and I think, like, particularly in the UK... There's sort of like, there's not that much information or understanding about fermented foods. Most people don't even know that, like, you know, alcohol, bread, like these are all fermented foods. It's kind of like this term that's like in the corner and they kind of associate it with rot and, you know, like, well, that sort of thing. I actually really liked your analogy in the book of the, the nightclub line yeah. about what fermenting is. Could you explain that a bit more? I literally thought that. Na- I hit think the nail I'll, on the head. I'll pass this one over to, to David. Um, David, you're the nightclub guy. <laughs> yeah, maybe back in my early 20s. <laughs> yeah. not, not so much anymore. No, but uh, that, was, that was the best way I could, I could describe it mm-hmm. to people. In a very, everyone, whether you've been into a nightclub downtown in whatever city you live in or yeah, not, yeah. or walked by one, you at least know that there's a bouncer at the door. Yeah. There's a line forming out front, mm-hmm. and that line isn't all full of the same person. No. There's the drunk that's causing a problem at the tail end. That the bouncer's not going to let in. Yeah, yeah. And then there's the distinguished man and his beautiful girlfriend that are absolutely going to go inside because mm-hmm. they're going to sip champagne and make the Spend place look great. Money. Exactly. Yeah. As a fermenter, you're doing the same thing. You have a product that you want to transform. Mm-hmm. You want to make an empty nightclub an amazing party. You want to take a boring cabbage and make it a delicious sauerkraut. You have to decide who's allowed to come in and who mm-hmm. isn't. 
as a fermenter, you are a bouncer. You're the one who is deciding, and your velvet rope is every tool that we talk about in the book, yeah, whether yeah. that's oxygen or salt mm-hmm. or acidity. Mm-hmm. Those are your velvet ropes. Those are the things that you use to control this whole world of unseen microbes and decide who can come in and who can't. At the beginning of the book, we have this primer, and we talk about all of the potential pathogens that could make it their way into your food and all of the microbes that you actually want in your food yeah. and what they all need. And it's it's really like a police lineup. It's yeah. like, okay, who's this character? Where are they from? What do they do? And, and like, what's their MO? And every microbe that you could use in fermentation has some sort of... You know, th- some sort of criteria that you yeah, need right. to fulfill to allow them into the club mm-hmm. and to keep others out. Yeah. And I thought it was really interesting that you actually included all the, the negative bacteria, the ones that you don't yeah. want in, because often you only hear about the ones that are good. But actually, it was quite interesting to read through, like, you know, these are the ones that are bad, and this is why we're stopping them. And this, like, you know, I thought that was actually really interesting, because usually it's not talked about. or No, but it's, it's extremely important. And that <laughs> yes, is... I think. If, if you really want to feel comfortable fermenting, you can't just understand what you're supposed to do. You also have to understand what you're not supposed yeah. to do. That's as important. Mm-hmm. And understanding that, yeah, if you're working with chicken wing garum and, you know, you haven't salted things enough, salmonella could pop up. Yeah, yeah. So this is what you need to know to make sure that doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a very big part of the book. I mean... There's a lot of amazing fermentation books out there that have inspired even us at Noma, you know, yeah. going back 10 years to, to, to start doing this stuff at all. But a lot of them fell short on really, like, really driving home the points of safety, who's at play, and, and how to do that well. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. That's the main thing. Well, one of the main things I picked up from the start of the book is, is that, is that, like, I think it's a, for a lot of people, the safety issue is a reason for not doing it or being scared or doing it once and chucking it because you're not sure or, and yeah. the more information that you can get, like you've given, means that hopefully more people will continue and make more things and actually go on to be like, okay, you can just take the mold off or actually maybe I didn't use enough salt. That's why this is exactly. that. Like, so. What kind of ferments did you like grow up eating? Most people remember like dill pickles or, you know, from the... Mostly drinking ferments. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, um, in my case, the first ferment I recall is getting way too drunk. Yes. On uh, cheap wine at a very early age, actually. Now that I have kids myself, I'm like, I can't believe I got drunk at that age. Yeah. I don't want this for my kids. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, when I think back, that's probably the first time i realized that but then there's also bread you know of i do course. remember Ever as a present. child um going to the to the baker in the weekends and buying hot bread out of the oven yeah yeah but only as an adult at the restaurant actually i understood that both these things the childhood memory and the youthful memory of getting too drunk are both products of fermentation yeah i don't know what about you david um yeah i, gr- I grew up in uh uh, a, a mixed household. I mean, my mother's from the Caribbean. Mm-hmm. Uh, my father is uh, a Polish Jew, born in Canada right after the war. Um, and so, yeah, yeah, I had a lot of weird Jewish pickles, you know, yes, like yeah, yeah. neon pink horseradish and, and dill pickles and, mm-hmm. you know, pickled beets in my fridge. And I also had a, a cupboard full of fermented hot sauces. I didn't even know they were fermented at the time. I just knew that my mother loved her sour, super spicy scotch bonnet paste and would put it on everything she made. Yeah, yeah. So I definitely, you know, 
tea, coffee. My parents were always drinking cheese, bread. It's everywhere. It's so prevalent really in yeah. everyone's life. And I think most people grow up not even realizing that microbes have all of this to say about you know what they eat mm-hmm. um, in their daily lives. If you could only have one ferment, what would it be? Of the ones that we do at the restaurant, it would definitely be the chicken wing garum. Mm-hmm. So the chicken wing garum is a, is a inspired by, uh, you know, a, an old Roman sauce, an old Roman fish sauce uh, called garum, mm-hmm. which was made from, from fish. Um, and, you know, to people who don't uh, understand what that means, imagine a Thai fish sauce, which is, I think most people understand then mm-hmm. what that is. So... We've taken the idea of that and and uh, and basically replaced fish by roasting chicken wings, and then making the same type of sauce from that, mm-hmm. and that yields a liquid that is incredible. It is simply um, beyond the best uh, sort of uh, stock, mm-hmm. like chicken roasted chicken bone yeah, yeah. stock you can imagine. It is a potion that yields so much flavor and potency that two drops of it can be that thing that makes your pasta taste amazing. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, I, I mean, we use it at the restaurant quite a bit, but I also use it in my home. So my wife actually does this pasta, and it's inspired by uh, carbonara. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, and you know, she just adds a spoonful of, uh, of chicken wing gara. It's almost like how some people might use a stock cube or like, you know, or like... Uh, like but so much that, more that, better. But, yeah. I mean, chicken wing garum is like when you roast the chicken, you have that the roasted juices in the bottom of the mm-hmm. pan that's all sort no, of sticky. sticky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you imagine that as a liquid, added acidity and freshness to it. Mm-hmm. And then something more that I just can't describe because it is what fermentation adds to it. But it's it's something like that with with more to it. Yeah. If, if I could interject of here. Of course. Those, those bullion stock cubes. Just so, aren't they, pretty much? Like the OXO. Yeah. The the nor mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. the Maggie, mm-hmm. all of those are industrial chemical derivatives from the things that people were making in ancient Japan and China anyway. Right, and okay. it wasn't until scientists from Asia mm-hmm. really discovered what was going on in these traditional ferments that people back in Europe started breaking those processes down and finding ways to make cheaper, quicker versions of it. Yeah. So it's a bit of a roundabout. The fact that they're so prevalent in the world, and you know, it, it's really funny. You go to Africa, and like everywhere uses Maggie cubes. Maggie, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was something that was invented in Switzerland, and it's it's gotten so far removed from the actual base processes. And all the garums in this book are kind of new inventions based on that ancient technique that doesn't try and cheat it. It really gets to the core of it, and, yeah, but yeah. then and then blows it open and sees mm-hmm. where else is possible. It makes it more interesting. Yeah, definitely. And um, for me, that was one of the most interesting chapters that I was reading because I know really so little about them, and it's really intriguing to learn about how uh, the Ro- like the Romans or the Carthaginians originally in like Tunisia, is it? Um, yeah. Like, and were, were making them, um, and then did, did they take it to Southeast Asia? Because obviously, when you think garum, it's basically that's, like fish sauce. That's, kind of hard that's a very murky history and i'm, right. I'm no, not you, no one, no one, <laughs> asian historian no, no yeah. like you can't you can't you can't quite connect the dots but but i can i i mean there was a lot people of people in asia and, were fermenting fish in that way probably at the same time as it was happening in north africa yeah 
But it is striking. I will mm-hmm. say that it is very striking the similarities between the way that fish sauce is made today in places like Vietnam mm-hmm. and the way that it was made um, throughout the Roman Empire. Yeah. And I think that's... I, I'm really looking forward to getting stuck into that because I really want to make one of the garums now because I think if like people who like fermenting like tinkering like playing like like experimenting really and to use something like raw chicken or raw fish to then ferment it safely and then get something uber delicious like you're talking about for me is like that's, I'm excited by that I Good. really want to <laughs> really want to give it a crack you know Good. And, and it's worth it and it's worth it, it really is although I don't have the uh, 60 degree um, you can find a rice cooker that's very true there you go yeah done just find one without an auto off function right well it'll turn itself off and do you, do you have a hot spring in your backyard um <laughs> not in camberwell no no not, not where i live the bathtub just keep the water at 60 <laughs> yeah i, I mean i'm the sure rice, the, the yeah rice, yeah the rice cooker is a good uh, alternative so that just holds it in at a certain temperature like you can just keep it in there yeah, rice cookers, the keep warm setting on a rice mm-hmm. cooker is 60 degrees. Right, perfect. And in 60 degrees, because that's the temperature where you keep microbes out out of the picture. That's that's why we use that temperature. Yeah, so that's, again, that's another, like, thing. Because that's, like, your bouncer. That's your bouncing exactly. those, bad, exactly. those bad things. It's not just salt. Sometimes it's temperature. Yeah. It's not just temperature. Sometimes it's acidity. Sometimes it's oxygen. So, mm-hmm. yeah, there's a, there's a lot of tools at your disposal. I'd like to talk a little bit about MSG because that was another thing that came up in the garum. Um, like it's still viewed really badly, but um, it's sort of come round a bit. People are like actually coming around to it a bit more, and, and it's and it's some of the thing, well, basically the glutamate that's in mm-hmm. MSG yep. is something that you get in the garum. Yes, it, yeah, that is that is one of the biggest trophies you could take home. Yeah, as a fermenter, mm-hmm. is the creation of glutamate or MSG. Yes. Um, and yes, there are companies that make this synthetically. Mm-hmm. Um, they process it to the point where it's a white powder that you can, you know, sprinkle into your stews if you want. Yeah. But that's boring because it, even though you might be getting the effect of MSG if you're sprinkling it on, yeah. Uh, you know, as Chinese restaurants in the '70s might have done. Mm-hmm. At the same time, when you create it naturally, when you're actually fermenting something all of that original product is coming with you. You're not just getting the MSG, you're getting the flavor of the beef, the chicken, the the soybeans, the yeah. yellow peas, the lentils, whatever you chose to ferment that had protein in it. Afterwards, you get all of its flavors transformed and then this incredible mouth-filling umami. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's completely why we do what it's, we do. It's worth it. Yeah, it's I'm, worth every I... drop of sweat. And patience. Yeah, well, I think it's the is it, ten, is it ten weeks that it takes if you use the yeah, if you, with, with koji. But if yeah. if you're not, it would be nine to twelve months. Yeah, it can. If you're if you're trying to make a garum just with the natural enzymes in a fish or or what have you, yeah, it can take quite a while. I think that's one of the things when you start fermenting is you learn is patience. Like you you can't you can't rush it. Well, even though you found a way to like slightly speed it up, but even still, that's still yeah. Um, is there things that you sort of find that or I suppose you're probably a professional, so you like have it all written down, but is there, <laughs> do you ever find stuff that you come across and you're like, oh, I completely forgot about that. It's sort of been chilling for like a year. In, no, some, in the lab. Sometimes, you know, just for our own edification, it will we'll taste uh, an experiment at its scheduled, like, okay, check it after two months. And mm-hmm. 
we might be like, meh, yeah. about it. And then instead of being like, well, should we throw it out? Or like, yeah, I'll just leave it on. Yeah. We'll see where it see, goes. See where it goes. Yeah. It doesn't often get much better. Sometimes. Sometimes it does. But the you, oldest, sort of, you sort of know when it's like, yeah, I don't think this is going to transform. Oh, the oldest thing we have going in the lab right now is actually one the very first experiment from one of the recipes in the book, but that was the, the rose shrimp garum. Right. And there is still a sample of that that's at like three years now. Still, still kicking away in there. And will that continue to improve, or is it sort of like flatlining now? It's kind of just. I don't know if it's improving, but it's changing. It's changing. How so? Getting, I don't know, a bit funkier. But I think, I think it might have peaked. I think sometimes with some of these fermentations, I don't know. You can travel to some countries, and they will say, "Oh, my fermentation is twenty years old." Mm. Uh, I'm not hundred percent sure that it actually makes uh, a giant difference. That they're just old, you know? Yeah. Like sometimes you will have tea and they will say, oh, this is a 30-year-old aged tea. Mm. And I'm not sure that it makes such a difference to a five-year-old. Surely everything one. has its peak and yeah, doesn't matter, so. like, oh, doesn't matter if it's so. 20 years old, but if it yeah. was better 10 years, uh, 10 years, then yeah. that's when it's best at. That's it. Yeah. Um, so what have you had? What's like the biggest disaster you've had? Have you had like an envision for something and you've like, it's just not worked at all or has been like disgusting or? Oh yeah. I mean, we've had plenty of things, but the worst uh, disaster we've ever had is definitely working with blood. Yeah. Uh, so did you try a garum from pig's blood? Yeah, we tried a garum from pig's blood. You know, pig's blood is a commonly used ingredient back home and like it is here in England, I yeah, guess. Yeah. Blood pudding, you have yeah. that all the time. Yeah. And so we thought, okay, here we have proteins, and blood is full of that. So, you know, instead of fish, let's do the garum. But mm-hmm. it was, I it was don't know. Like the not. worst thing, imagine the worst thing you've ever had and time it with 10. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's blood that's going garum. Some. That's blood garum. And, you what? know, it, it just didn't work. And, and, um, and that's the thing about also when things don't work, you're just not in doubt. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you, it is you know, uh, beyond bad. Fair play. Well, any, any other stories? Any, any more bad ones, David? It, yeah, sometimes, I mean, sometimes things do go wrong and there is, um, there, there is a wild bacteria. It's the one responsible for natto in Japan, yeah, right, that, that yeah. slimy, slimy, snotty-looking yeah, yeah. soybean. Sometimes that will get into some of our ferments if, the, if you know, the koji can't cool down fast yeah, enough. Yeah, yeah. And that tends to smell like ammonia. Yes. Like, which isn't no, a pleasant nice. smell at all. Mm-hmm. We have tried to do it on purpose. Yeah. And I, I very quickly quashed those experiments. Yeah. You know, after two days, you're like, no, this isn't this isn't going to somehow magically become delicious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's, it's an acquired taste that doesn't lend any sort of subtle redeeming qualities to foods you might mix it into. Yeah. I, I'm sure there's a lot of proponents out there who would be like, oh, I love natto. And what, what like, does it taste like? It is, it is a bit, uh, I mean, it is a bit stinky. And, yeah. and there is that like ammonia yeah, yeah, yeah. quality to it. It kind of definitely, it like gets inside you and fills your navel cavity. And then on yeah. top of that, the actual texture, texture. that yeah, kind yeah. of slides all over your tongue. Yeah. Um, and don't get me wrong. There, there, like I said, there are a lot of people that enjoy a bowl of steamed rice, a bit of soy sauce, and some natto beans strewn through it. But um, not you. It's I, I can appreciate it, but it's it's not what I'm reaching for. We're trying yeah, to make yeah. the, that uh, that like amazing sauce for the main course at Noma. Yeah, yeah. I was in um, Hong Kong in January, and uh, there's like stinky tofu everywhere there, and it just yeah. it like 
it's not for me, man. Like, it doesn't matter that you deep fry it. Like, and I, you, I'm like, I'm anything deep fried is usually good for me. I'm Scottish, so well, originally, so there, there are these, yeah, there are these ferments, fermented foods that you have to be a local to uh, to truly enjoy at first. I mean, how many is it? You say 50 times you have to try something before you, and then you like it. Or is it 20 times as a rule or something? What's like the that? point? If you don't like it, why well, keep trying? <laughs> Yeah, I guess so. But you know, there it's persistence. You, in Sweden, you will have Suosturmning, mm. which is uh, this canned fish that ferments. Oh yeah, and, I, and it's I was... only done until the can in itself has turned round. Well, because it's just so much pressure in there yeah. from build up of oh, yeah. ammonia and gases. And, and when you open that up, it's oh my god. And then uh, in Iceland, there's fermented shark. Yeah, the shark, right? Which is. I don't know, man. I I, I can't even describe it. It's but like uh, I don't know. It's like uh, I guess it's Saturday. It's Friday night in London. Tomorrow in some back alley in Soho, where yeah, yeah. where you'll have like a hundred people pissing. Yeah. Imagine that just in 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 the shape of fish. In shape of fish. <laughs> but I suppose that was born out of necessity, right? Like that's it. That's what goes back to ferment, fermenting is prolonging. The life of an ingredient, sure. like a fresh ingredient, yeah, right? Absolutely. But, and I'm sure that fermented shark, shark served a purpose at some point. Yeah. We have fridges. Oh, yeah. Now. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I also do think that it's just because we're not used to it, we don't like it. Uh, so I'm not trying to make fun of it or anything because I think people that are grown up with it, it's part of their tradition. And who are we to say that what's good or bad? But but yes, you're right. Fermentations, they, they came, uh, all of them out of necessity. Um, in, in in early days, who were thinking about flavor? I mean, it was all about surviving winter mm-hmm. and having as many ingredients and as much nutrition as you could yeah. into the cold season, particularly in our region. Uh, and, of course, drying would be an important uh, mm-hmm. factor. Uh, and then you'd have, uh, you know, salting or fermenting. And some places salt would be a, a, a expensive thing and, you know, thing would be very fermented um, and that's how we actually entered the world of fermentations is because we're as we're opening Noma 15 years ago we're sort of uh, researching the ingredients and trying to figure out what are we going to cook with mm-hmm. and at a certain point you stumble upon the fact that we used to preserve food so much um, but we've gotten away from it because mm-hmm. today there's spring every day in a supermarket you yeah. don't need to preserve anymore yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's so much flavor to be found in, in these old techniques. And so that's how we stumbled upon it, mm-hmm. it's discovering our tradition. Yeah. And like, I suppose you have you done a lot of research into Danish ferments and, and like what's... Yeah, we've done quite a bit. That's how it all started. I mean, mostly, most uh, Danish ferments, they come from through bread, mm-hmm. particularly rye bread. That's in the, in the DNA of every single... Danish bread. I, I would say that there's not a child in Denmark that doesn't have a liver paste and rye, liver, liver paste on rye sandwich. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Is that like the standard pat, like pat lunch? Yes. And maybe some licorice. Um, Very different to mine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but but also uh, fermented fish. That mm-hmm. used to be quite common. Uh, you know, we're known for hearings and so yes, on, but yeah, that's yeah. a fermentation of fish too. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. Well, I think that's a yeah, I think that's a pretty good uh, place to end on. Thank you so much guys for attending to me. Thank it's you. Like a real honor, genuinely.
Thank you so much. Thanks for the book. Thanks for saying that. I hope you enjoy the book. And I have to say <laughs> that fermenters are the coolest people I know in the world. So that was the Olive Magazine podcast. If you like this episode, please head over to iTunes and leave a review. We'd really love to hear from you. If you'd like to find out more information on things in this episode, you can visit our website, olivemagazine.com. You can still pick up a copy of our bumper Christmas issue on the newsstand now. All goes around the app version. Bye for now, and we'll be back next week with more food and drink chat.